0: Morning, everybody. We are in the middle of our Matthew series, and we really are in the middle. This story today, combined with the story from last week, it's kind of one unit, forms like the turning point of the whole book. It's a high point, as we'll see, and it's also the point where the book shifts its kind of focus, and even the feel. We're going to have some kind of stories in Galilee that happen after this, but the focus of the story is going to shift to Jerusalem from this point on. So like I said, today's story, directly connected to last week, so quick review of what we saw last week. Jesus took the disciples to the city called Caesarea Philippi. And Isaac talked last week about how it's best described as a hive of scum and villainy for the Star Wars nerds out there. City that represents everything in opposition to God. And there, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter famously becomes the first person to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And he receives this incredible commendation from Jesus for that. Now, right after that, Jesus starts to tell the disciples what that means and that he is going to go and suffer and die. And Peter reveals how little he understands about what the Messiah is actually supposed to be by his reaction to that. Because right after he's just said this incredible thing and gotten this huge commendation, he like gets in Jesus' face and says, no, there's no way. You're not going to do that. You're not going to die. You don't have to die. And so Jesus rebukes Peter in every bit as strong of terms as he had just commended him. I mean, he goes from saying, you're Peter and on this rock I'm going to build my church to in the very next paragraph saying, get behind me Satan. This is a really powerful moment because it reveals a couple things. It reveals, like I said, that, that Peter, even though he gets that Jesus is the Messiah, he doesn't yet get what the Messiah actually is. To him, he still thinks of the Messiah as the person who is going to militarily rescue Israel from the grip of its enemies. He's going to go and defeat Rome. It's probably what Peter thinks. So the idea of Jesus suffering and dying, that can't possibly be right. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do, right? But it also reveals that in what Peter is saying, in denying Jesus' suffering and death, Jesus hears an echo of the temptation of Satan from the wilderness all the way back at the very beginning of Matthew. It's another opportunity for a shortcut. Peter is saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to do the will of the Father. You don't have to go and suffer and die. Why would anyone do that? And in that, Jesus hears that same offer of a shortcut, a way to go around the will of God and in a very human way, try to achieve the kingship that is actually in store for him after he fulfills the will of the Father. So he says, I don't want anything to do with that. Get out of here with that, Peter. That's where we pick up the story. That's what Jesus says right after that. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see right in here, this is Jesus not only not backing away from what Peter was resistant to. So remember, Jesus has just talked about the Messiah is going to suffer. Peter says, no, 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 there's no way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And not only that, not only is the Messiah going to suffer, but those who want to follow the Messiah are going to suffer as well. He doubles down on it. And he goes on after this to say some very, very famous things. We don't have time to explore them all the way, but very famous statements about how anyone who wants to save his life or gain the world but lose his soul is making a terrible bargain. And Jesus says the reason for that is because there's a judgment coming that will show that the things of this world are not the ultimate things. And so if you want to save your life, you have to be willing to lose it. And the center of that point is right here in this statement. If anyone wants to come after me, what does he have to do? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is like the world's worst sales pitch, right? You wanna be my follower? Here's what it's gonna look like. Take up a cross and follow me. And here's the thing. We have 2000 years of Christian history to reshape what the cross means to us, right? We wear crosses around our necks on necklaces because we see it as the symbol of beauty and redemption. If you're talking to Roman-occupied first-century Jewish men and you say, take up your cross, that is a horrific image. It's like, take up a device of, of death and torture. Take up a weapon of imperial terror that Rome has been using to quell rebellion all around you. You've walked down Roman highways and seen your countrymen on crosses. There is nothing positive, sacred, or sweet about the image of the cross at this point when he's saying this to the disciples. He's not telling them to wear a necklace, right? Take up a torture device. Deny yourself. And so the question that you have to come to this next story with is how on earth does that make sense? Like how can you ask someone to do this? How is this a reasonable request of your followers? How can Jesus look at the disciples and say, if you want to follow me, be ready to suffer? How can anyone, any Christian, be expected to do that? And the story that follows is the answer. And here's the thing, it is the most like, beautiful, profound, literally transcendent, spiritual answer imaginable. And this this story just has layer upon layer and mystery upon mystery. And when you start to pull it apart and see it, you see it just paint the most incredibly beautiful picture that answers the question of how the Christian can suffer. So here it is. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So Jesus takes the kind of inner circle from within the 12. He has the 12 who follow them. And then within that, there's the three, Peter, James, and John, who represent the kind of inner circle within that group. And we're going to see several times that he takes them aside, and they're sometimes privy to stuff like this that the rest of the disciples Don't get to see. And he takes them up a high mountain. There's a lot of debate about what mountain this is. The most likely candidate, in my opinion, is Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon. It's 14 miles away from Caesarea Philippi, where they just were, and it is a a high mountain. It's close to 10,000 feet high. Totally makes sense. I wish we had time to talk about all the reasons why it's also a crazy place for this to happen. Because Mount Hermon for all of Israel's history is like a hotbed of, of pagan idolatry and worship of false gods and that's where Jesus goes to do this. It's absolutely incredible. So he takes Peter, James, and John up this high mountain and it says he's transfigured. Literally in Greek that's metamorpho. So that word metamorphosis basically untranslated and transfigured is just those exact same two parts of a word but in Latin metamorpho, transfigura, same thing. So the word is just a straightforward translation, transliteration straight from Greek into Latin. We don't really know exactly what it means. The parts of the word communicate that his form is in some way going beyond what it is. He's changing in some way that is beyond what he's been before. But when you see what happens, that his face suddenly shines like the sun and his clothes suddenly become as white as light, you realize you're not seeing like something new being added onto Jesus, right? The disciples are seeing Jesus with less of the restriction on the glory that's always there. Something's being revealed that before this was subdued. And then this just absolutely bizarre thing happens, especially as you're reading this as a modern person. Moses and Elijah, Two people who have been dead for generations, or have they been, spoiler alert, appear there talking with him. And in Matthew's account, that's all it says. And you go like, well, what were they talking about? But Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke says Moses and Elijah appear there, and they speak to him of his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So you can see that perspective shift toward Jerusalem happening right there in the middle of the story. Talk to him about his departure. It's about to happen in Jerusalem. We have a lot more to say about Moses and Elijah, a lot more, but let's finish the story first. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. There's a sense in which Peter's trying to keep this moment happening. He's trying to like set up a camp so that this can continue. We don't know exactly why. One of the other gospel authors actually says it's because Peter doesn't know what to say, which I love. It's like the most relatable moment in the entire New Testament. Peter's like, let's make tents. And Luke's like, he he didn't know what to say. Like, same, Peter. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Just ends. So abruptly, like that. And you see a couple things in here already that have huge resonance if you're familiar with the Old Testament. To be on the top of a mountain and have a bright cloud show up is like story after story after story about the direct presence of God. This would call to mind the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt in the Exodus, the cloud that was at the top of the mountain when Moses received the Ten Commandments, the glory cloud of God that descends on the temple and on the tabernacle when God's presence is there. It always is this picture of the direct presence of God. And the voice speaks, and it does two things right off the bat that are very clear. It it says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so that, first of all, affirms what Peter has just said. So Peter just six days ago, Caesarea Philippi, just said, you are the Christ, the son of God. And here the voice of the Father from heaven affirms that. This is my son. But it's also an affirmation of something all the way back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Does anybody notice what this seems familiar to from earlier in the gospel? Baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the same thing happens. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. But as we'll see by the end today, there's even more happening than that in this statement. Voice speaks from the cloud. The disciples fall on their faces in fear. Jesus goes and comforts them, and when they look up, everything's back to normal. And it's just over. And you go like, what is going on? on here what is this Moses and Elijah of all people I mean we've already seen these kind of names and resonances of these characters come up a few times throughout the gospel accounts, right? Like of all these things where Jesus is, is enacting mosaic type of actions, like when he goes upon a mountain and gives the law or when he provides bread for his people in the middle of the wilderness. He's already evoked that image of Moses. And a lot of stuff's come up with Elijah related to John the Baptist, that he's kind of the person who comes in the spirit of Elijah. We're gonna see just in a minute Jesus say that same thing again. But why these two guys standing on the top of the mountain with Jesus of all the characters from Israel's history? When you start to look at the lives of Moses and Elijah, you see all of these like confluences and similarities start to arise and it brings it all together why they are the only people who would be chosen to stand there with Jesus. So let's jump in one at a time. Moses is iconic in the Old Testament. I wish I had the time to tell all the details of his story. Many of you will be familiar with it. He's the character from the Exodus account. Some of you just picture Charlton Heston the minute you hear him, right? <laughs> that movie where he rescues his people from bondage. You remember that? Like, it's a very big deal. He has a very huge, awesome white beard by the end. But in the beginning, he's like having, I guess he's having like fights with Pharaoh at one point in that movie. Anyway, sorry. If you ever want to watch four hours, how many, okay, here's a question. That has nothing to do with my sermon. How many of you haven't seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? Oh, man, you have homework. It, doesn't, it always plays around Thanksgiving, too, doesn't it? On wh- Whoever still has TV, go and watch the one thing that will be worth watching on TV in November. The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. So Moses is this man who was born into slavery in Egypt as an Israelite, but through God's miraculous intervention, he's actually raised in the household of Pharaoh. He ends up fleeing from Egypt, and when he's in the wilderness, he encounters God on a mountain called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, two names for the same mountain, very important. He encounters God in a burning bush, and God reveals himself to him, tells him his name, Yahweh, and he sends him back to rescue his people. And so Moses goes back to Egypt and through the miraculous events of the Exodus, he rescues God's people from Egyptian control, brings them out, and after he's brought them out into the wilderness, he's called once again up Mount Sinai to meet with God. And he goes up there to receive the law. Now he goes up into a cloud filled with God's presence, like we talked about a minute ago, and he receives this law that the people of Israel have already agreed to follow. They've already said, hey, we'll do whatever you say. But during the time that he's up there, Israel rebels and practices horrible pagan idolatry. And so there's this threat that everything's gonna fall apart. And Moses actually has to intercede on Israel's behalf with God. And so God agrees to spare Israel. He says, I'm gonna send them out into the promised land. And Moses goes, I'm not leading them if you don't come with me. Moses sees this huge, horrible task before him. and He goes, I'm not doing it if you don't come with me. And God says, I'll be with you. And Moses, in response to that, has this crazy request. Moses said, that says Deuteronomy, it should be Exodus, that's my fault. Moses said, please show me your glory. It's like he wants to see God before he goes and does this horribly difficult thing. If I'm going to lead this rebellious people who just proved how horrible they are right after you rescued them from Egypt. They've already demonstrated that they can be really whiny and really forgetful of God's goodness to them. And then they're already like worshiping false gods while you're giving the covenant. If I'm going to lead them, I need to see you. And God tells them, you can't fully see my glory. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in a cleft in the rock, and I'm going to pass by you. That's the image. We talked about this when Jesus walked on water. I'm gonna pass by, and I'm gonna allow you to see. It's interesting, the Bible translates it different ways. Some of them says like the back of his glory. The idea is almost like the afterglow, the after effect of God's glory having passed by. Because you can't look right into my face, but I'm gonna pass by you, and you're gonna see the afterglow, the after effect, the back of my glory. So Moses gets this incredible gift. And when he comes down the mountain, this really interesting thing happens. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him." So just from seeing the back of the glory of God after he's passed by, Moses' face is glowing you're paying attention, you're already starting to see some things that sound real familiar with what just happened with Jesus, right? Talk more about that later. But here's the incredible thing, like I don't even have time to unpack for you all of the things in Moses going up the mountain that map on to what just happened with Jesus in the transfiguration. Like the fact that there's six days that pass before both of them go up, the fact that they both bring three people up with them, the fact that they come down and people are terrified and they have to comfort them and lift them up. But Moses has his face shining from this encounter of the after effect of the glory of God. And he has to wear a veil on his face for a while until it passes. The end of Moses' life is incredibly unusual also. So he he goes from there and he's sent off on this very difficult task, 40 years wandering in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And then at the end, he tells the people this, that he heard from God. He says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses has been this incredibly unique prophet with this incredibly close connection with God. And he says, another prophet like me is coming. And that's the one you're gonna listen to. But it's very mysterious because when the book of Deuteronomy closes, the author says explicitly, there hasn't been a prophet like this since. So Israel was perpetually waiting for this prophet like Moses to show up. And then the events of Moses' death as they're recorded in Deuteronomy are extremely unusual. Look at this. And Yahweh said to him, I say this every time, but just it's always a good thing to stay familiar with. When you see Lord in all capital letters in your Old Testament, that's translating the name of God, Yahweh. That's why I say it that way. And Yahweh said to him, speaking to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of Yahweh. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. It's the end of Moses' life. Now, Moses has spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness with the people of Israel to bring them to the promised land. But because of an act of rebellion and disobedience on his part, God says, you're going to die here within view of the promised land, but you're not going to set foot inside its boundaries. So Moses dies outside the promised land, having never gone in. And then look, anybody notice this? Who buried Moses? So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Yahweh, and he buried him in the... Who buried Moses? Sounds like God buried him. Now it's somewhat ambiguous in Hebrew, but it sure seems like God buried him, and no one knows where he's buried to this day. And a bunch of different kind of speculations grew up around that. There are some Jewish traditions that said that he never actually died. But then also in the New Testament, you have this comment from Jude about how there was like an angelic wrestling and struggle over the body of Moses. And no one knows where he's buried. So there's this really just odd, mysterious ending to his life. And it caused that mystery to kind of develop into this expectation that when the Messianic age comes, Moses' arrival is going to be a part of it becomes part of the story of of messianic expectation. Moses is so significant to the getting of the law from the Lord, from the the giving of the law to the people, that he becomes, his name becomes like synonymous with Israel's law. If you want to win an argument in Jesus' day about how Jewish people should live or behave, you could literally say, Moses said, and then quote anything from the law. That's how closely Moses is identified. I mean, he's the law. Moses said is a way of quoting the Bible in Jesus' time. It's an incredible level of closeness between the law of God and the person of Moses. All right, now let's talk about this other guy. Elijah is a wild character. Some of my favorite stories in the entire Bible are about him. He comes along later during the period of the kings. You see him in First and Second Kings. And he's a prophet who's like not just a prophet, but he's like the prophet. He's the iconic prophet who's from the wilderness, who comes out and pronounces God's judgment upon his people. And so Elijah spends his entire life sparring back and forth with evil kings of Israel, specifically with King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, two incredibly evil characters who were embroiled in the worship of Baal, the false god of the Canaanites. And so Elijah is constantly giving them pronouncements of judgment from God. He's constantly struggling back and forth, and the kind of like high point of that struggle comes in this story, we have a children's book about it that's called The God Contest, highly recommend, because that's basically what it is. They go up onto a mountain, once again, Mount Carmel, and on that mountain, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and says, we are going to have a God contest. We're gonna have a tournament of champions between these two gods, and here's how it's gonna work all of you guys, which by the way, there were hundreds of them, all of you guys are going to call upon Baal to bring fire upon an altar. And I, by myself, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to ask Yahweh to bring fire upon the altar. And the one who can do this, his God wins. That's the real God. And everyone's like, cool, deal. But they never keep their deal. That's part of the Bible story. Just always expect that to happen. Whoever makes a deal doesn't keep it, except for God. So, They set up their altars, the prophets of Baal go crazy all day doing all these different worship rituals, trying to call down fire and they're unsuccessful. There's even a part where Elijah's like talking smack to them, which is super awesome. He's like, hey, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. That's in the Bible. It's like the best smack talk ever. You know, maybe he's taking a nap. You guys should be louder to try to wake him up. Can you believe that? In the Old Testament a prophet's like, maybe your God's in the bathroom and so he's busy right now. Maybe give him a minute. I love that. They try all day, nothing happens. Elijah goes, all right, my turn. Goes to his altar, digs a trench around it, covers the sacrifice with water, covers the altar with water, fills the trench with water, says one prayer and God sends fire and consumes the sacrifice. It's this incredibly dramatic moment. It's like, it should be victory. It should be like, all right, no one's ever worshiping Baal again. How much clearer could it get? But that's not at all how it goes. Jezebel reacts unsurprisingly with just anger and hatred, and says, if I see Elijah again, he's dead. If he shows up, if I put my eyes on him, I'm killing him. And so Elijah, right after this great victory, has to flee, and he flees into the wilderness. And He stays in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He miraculously received, receives bread while he's in the wilderness. And after all his wandering, where does he end up? Mount Sinai. Same mountain where Moses saw the burning bush where Moses received the law. And he goes up the mountain and he goes into a cave there. And while he's in the mountain cave, he like just pours out his complaint to God. He goes, I have been serving you, doing everything you said, been resisting the entire nation of Israel and I'm the only one left. It's like the center point of his complaint. I'm the last one who actually serves you in this entire kingdom and I can't do it anymore. There's this sense of like desperation and I'm I'm done, I can't do this, it's too much. And then this incredible thing happens. And he said, it's interesting, the he in this is the word of Yahweh. I'm not gonna say anything else about that, that's a rabbit hole that's very tempting, but I'm not gonna go down it. So feel free to research that on your own. The word of Yahweh said, go out and stand on the mountain before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by exactly the same thing that happened with Moses. And in this story, it's this incredibly dramatic moment where Elijah is in his cave, and it's interesting. So all these indications that Elijah has this reticence to be obedient at this point, because he doesn't come out yet. He says, go go stand outside before Yahweh. And then Yahweh passes by, and the first thing that happens is this massive wind shakes the entire mountain. It says, pieces of the mountain are breaking off. And you're reading the story, and you're like, oh yeah, that's got to be God, right? But it says, Yahweh's not in the wind. And then this massive earthquake shakes the entire mountain, and you're like, that has to be Yahweh. It says Yahweh's not in the earthquake. Then finally, a fire tears across the entire mountain, and you're like, okay, that's Yahweh, because I know the Bible, and I know fire means Yahweh. He just did that on the Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. It says the fire is not God either. Yahweh's not in the fire. And then this happens. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper... And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And it says Yahweh is in this thin sound in Hebrew, this low whisper, this tiny voice. It's an incredible lesson in that. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, all of the places you expect to see God. And he's here in a whisper. And he encourages Elijah. He tells him, you're wrong, first of all. I've still got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not alone, and you can do this. And he provides Elijah with this encouragement, this vision of his glory. And mysteriously, Elijah wraps his face in his cloak before he goes out. It's not clear if that's out of obedience, out of humility, out of fear, what, what that's about. But He has his face wrapped up in a cloak, and he goes out, stands at the entrance, and receives these words from God, and then goes back to his incredibly difficult task and continues it. And if that's not enough similarity, his life also ends in an incredibly unusual way. This is the end of Elijah's earthly life. As they, so the they here is Elijah and his successor, the very confusingly similarly named Elisha. Good luck with that. So Elijah and Elisha are walking. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. And that's the end of Elijah's story, or Elijah, see, right there, already. That's the end of Elijah's story. Elijah doesn't die. He's carried away to heaven. And so again, this leads to this expectation in the prophets and in the teachings of the people of Israel, that before the Messiah returns, Elijah's going to return as the kind of herald of the Messiah, because he never died. So he swept up into heaven, and after that, his feet don't touch down again. So what you have here is the law, Moses, and the prophets represented by Elijah. Remember I said a minute ago, you could say Moses and be referring to the entire law of Israel. In the same way, you could say the law and the prophets as a way of referring to the entire Jewish Bible. You actually see Jesus do this over and over again in the Gospels. He'd be like, look to the law and the prophets, and what he means is the written word of God, the whole thing. You just call it the law and the prophets. It's the revelation of God's authoritative teaching in words, the law and the prophets. And here they are together, standing with Jesus on a mountain again. Look again at what we read. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Both of those men have had high mountain after high mountain where iconic things happened. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And this is crucial because it's different. The shining of Jesus' face is meant to evoke the shining of Moses' face, but it's fundamentally different. Moses' face shines as a reflection of the glory he's just seen. His his glory from his face is derivative. The glory that shines from Jesus is essential. It's as different as the shining of the moon is from the shining of the sun. You're actually seeing the source of the glory now. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Look at this. Jesus stands on the top of the mountain with two men whose lives align in so many bizarre ways. These guys who both represented God in a terribly ungodly age. One spends 40 years in the wilderness. One spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Both of them go up on mountaintops and meet with God and see partial glimpses of the glory of God and receive encouragement at a time when they're beleaguered and downtrodden. Both of them have seen a fraction of God's glory. And now they're standing seeing God himself. In the person of Jesus. Here's one of the most powerful things to me about this story Elijah goes up in chariots of fire, and now he's back on earth. Moses died in Moab, looking into the Promised Land, never having set foot in there. But what happens when Jesus comes? Moses gets into the Promised Land. Where is he right now? He's standing on a mountaintop in Israel. The prophet who died outside the promised land finally gets in when the Messiah is here. And then in the presence of the law and the prophets, in the presence of the representations of written authority over Israel, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, James, and John see the law and the prophets and they're told, Listen to him, Jesus. You remember what Moses told the people, right? Another prophet like me is going to come. And what? And to him you shall listen. Matthew showing you that true and final prophet. He has arrived. And even when you're there with the absolute sources of authoritative revelation from God, who do you listen to? You listen to Jesus. It's an incredible pulling together of thread after thread over thousands of years of Israel's history and it all culminates on a mountaintop with the transfiguration of Jesus. And then just like that, it ends. And look at the conversation that happens immediately after. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then thank God for Matthew being so clear. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So that whole middle part is is a clarification about the identity of John the Baptist as the promised Elijah. But look at structurally what's just happened. There's a symmetry in the story that is incredibly obvious once you see it. Caesarea Philippi, right? Jesus tells the disciples, Suffering is coming. Don't tell anyone I'm the, the Messiah. There's a command to secrecy, and then there's a promise that suffering's coming. Then you have the transfiguration, this incredible moment on the top of the mountain. And then immediately after, what happens? A command to secrecy. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. And again, a promise that suffering is coming. Suffering and secrecy with the revealed glory of God in the middle of it. What's so incredible about this is it's like the design of that passage is itself an image of what Jesus is in the incarnation. There is this glory of God himself, but concealed, and concealed within suffering itself. And so here's where it all comes together for us. We started out by asking, How on earth can a Christian be expected to do the kind of things that Jesus is telling them to do? How can you tell someone, take up your cross if you want to follow me, take up the torture device, prepare for suffering? How can that possibly make sense? And the story is the answer. How can you do it? You have to know who your king actually is. You have to see Jesus for who he is. And if he is who he was revealed to be on the mountain, then you can do it. If he's not, you can't. It's that simple. If he's not, it doesn't make sense. And this maps perfectly onto the stories of Moses and Elijah. Remember, both of them see God's glory in moments of devastation and fear and like the most difficult task imaginable ahead of them. Moses is going to lead the people through the wilderness for 40 years. Elijah has to go back and challenge the king and queen who have told him that they will kill him if they see him again. And what's God's answer? He shows them just a little piece of his glory. And the disciples, it's the same thing. Peter just revealed that he doesn't yet get what the Messiah is. They're like being told they have to take up crosses. They're gonna suffer and die. So what does Jesus do? Reveals to them the glory of God. Shows them who he really is. And it works, by the way. Peter's gonna have, we're gonna see them in the rest of the series. Peter's gonna continue to have ups and downs, but by the end of his life, according to church tradition, he is literally going to take up his cross and die in the manner of Jesus. How do you suffer? How do you endure? You've got to know who Jesus actually is. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And otherwise, you can't do it. You want to turn the other cheek when you're hit? You want to not resist an evildoer? You want to give without expecting anything back? All these things that Jesus says his people will do in the Sermon on the Mount? How can that possibly make sense? Unless he is who he was revealed to be on that mountain. God himself. I'm telling you, if the command is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and Jesus is just a good, wise teacher, Jesus is your co-pilot, that's my favorite one. Like, you get to fly the plane in that analogy. If he's your best friend only, good luck. The voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him. And what does he say? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The only way you can do that is if Jesus is who he revealed himself to be on the mountain of transfiguration. If he is the king of kings, lord of lords, God himself. Now, what's amazing is Paul understands this And Paul wasn't there on the mountain of transfiguration, but he got some incredible revelations of of the glory of God and the actual presence of Jesus in his lifetime as well. And so there's these moments in his letters where I'm convinced he's trying to evoke that same experience in the best way he can in words. So look at how he starts the letter to the Colossians. This is the very beginning of the book. He starts, as he often does, with a prayer. He's writing down a prayer for the people of God. And this is, we're gonna jump right into the middle of it, but he's praying for them. And he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul identifies, you're gonna need strengthening. Why? Because you need endurance and you need patience. You have to make it through this. And so he starts with incredibly encouraging stuff. He reminds them that they've been delivered from the domain of darkness. He reminds them of their forgiveness, that their sins have been forgiven, they've been redeemed, but he doesn't stop there. What he does immediately, the very next thing, is he launches into the most glorious description of Jesus imaginable. And it's like he's trying to show you with words to the best of his ability a picture of that Mount of Transfiguration, he wants you to see through words who Jesus actually is. How do you endure? You've got to know who he is. And so listen to this. If it helps you, you can close your eyes. If it helps you, you can read along with me. Listen to Paul's description of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross? Do you know that that is Jesus? Do you know that's who you pray through? Do you know that's the king who is interceding for you? Do you know that's your king? Or have you slowly been infiltrated by this idea that he's a really cool guy and he taught really cool stuff, and have you lost sight of the glory, of the very image of the invisible God, the one who sits above every throne, dominion, every spiritual being in rebellion against God, the one through whom everything was created, the one in whom, present tense, all things hold together. He is holding together reality actively. The head of the church, forced born from the dead, preeminent in all things. you got to see this. Words like this, for many of us, are as close as we're going to get to beholding the very glory of Jesus. And if you want to endure suffering and difficulty as a Christian, if you want to try to deny yourself and take up a cross and follow Jesus, that has to be the Jesus you follow. And so I encourage you today, take the fear and anxiety and insecurity and difficulty and struggles of your life, Hold them and look at the glory of Jesus. That's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the one who asks you to take up a cross and follow him. And if that's who he is, we can do it. And if he's anything less than that, I'm telling you, you can't. And here's where it gets even more incredible. Look how Paul ends that. Making peace by the blood of his cross. You take that image of this Unimaginably exalted Jesus, preeminent above everything, above every dominion, ruler, authority, holding reality together as we speak. And you imagine him going to the cross, being beaten and humiliated, dying. There's something that was pointed out, really beautiful insight, by a pastor named Mike Winger, who talks about how. The disciples who saw Jesus on the cross, one of them had seen Jesus on the Mountain of Transfiguration. Do you know that? Most of the disciples scattered, but John was there. John was in both places. So you have to imagine John on Golgotha watching Jesus bleed and die and knowing what's contained in that body knowing that at any minute, if he wanted to, Jesus could just explode with glory, face that shines like the sun, the full reality of who he actually is. And John looks at him suffering and goes, this is what he's doing for us. This is what he's doing for the glory of God. This is what he's willing to endure. And so I invite you to join me in looking at the glory of Jesus Christ and then considering together his willingness to have his body broken and his blood poured out to reconcile us. That, that is who bled and died on the cross. Not just a man, but God and man together. The head of everything, seated above all powers, preeminent in everything, in whom the fullness of God dwelt. That is who allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled to reconcile us so that our sins could be forgiven.